Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks for being with us. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and uh, Dr. Karen Eifler and I are the directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture. We're your hosts this evening. And we're delighted uh, to have with us this evening um, the president of the University of Portland, Father Mark Porman, and the provost, Dr. Tom Green. So let's, let's welcome them. Okay, housekeeping. I, I think some of our regulars can probably give this speech for me. If you are a K-12 through teacher of any description, you can receive free PDUs for attending this or any other Garaventa Center event, personal development units. Um, if you are a K-12 through teacher, you know what those are and how good it is to have them. There, is a, there will be a sheet that you can sign at the end of the evening, uh, and we'll get those uh, right out uh, to you. Um, if you're a student and have joined us this evening and would like your uh, professor to know that you've been here this evening, uh, similarly, at the end of the evening, there will be some, uh, some sheets that you can sign uh, to make that known. Uh, the Garaventa Center is in the midst of another extraordinarily busy semester, so we always like to give you a couple of coming attractions. Um, first of all, um, on this Friday, October 12th, we're going to have a concert with two of Oregon Catholic Press's most talented artists, pastoral musicians and composers Rudy Lopez and Estela Garcia Lopez. They're going to have a concert with a focus on Spanish praise texts, and that's going to be in the chapel of uh, Christ the Teacher at 7 p.m. on Friday, so uh, a free concert. And... Um, Everything else is on the other side of break, so we'll, we'll tell you about that later. But if you are interested, and of course you are, you can find these Garaventa Center schedules on, on the table outside the door, which give you uh, a pretty accurate and full list of uh, all of our events for the, for the year. Probably won't be all of our events because we keep coming up with brilliant ideas, and so there's always a new edition of the calendar coming out. Uh, most of you uh, know that the University of Portland is a, uh, a Holy Cross University founded by the Congregation of Holy Cross, the Holy Cross Fathers. And uh, some of you know that we have a, a sister university in um, South Bend, Indiana, that the University of Notre Dame um, is also a Holy Cross University. But I wonder how many of you know um, that that isn't the only uh, sister university that uh, the University of Portland has. There are other Holy Cross universities in the United States, including um, King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, from which our this evening's speaker uh, hails. Um, one of the discoveries that we've made in Holy Cross in the last few years is that we really need to uh, share the riches of the Holy Cross universities with one another. And, um, for example, we've had meetings where all the presidents of Holy Cross universities get together and where all of the provosts of Holy Cross universities get together. Well, 
Uh, tonight is in something of the same spirit. The idea is, wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, some of the finest professors from the uh, different Holy Cross universities could, could hit the road and, and travel to their sister schools um, and uh, kind of share the wealth in that way. And it's in that spirit that, uh, that tonight's uh, speaker uh, is joining us. Dr. Bernard Prusak is a, uh, he just feels like a Holy Cross, and he feels like an academic in the Holy Cross tradition to me. So if you know this place, why don't you just see if you can kind of sense a family resemblance with this fellow from, from Pennsylvania. I bet you'll be able to. Um, it will be flattering to us if you can, because he's a fine uh, scholar, and, and more than that, he's uh, a scholar who makes the professors and the academics around him even better um, by helping them to see how their ideas have uh, connections with one another and helping them to find how they can best make their ideas um, available to wider audiences. Dr. Prusak is Professor of Philosophy and Director of the McGowan Center for Ethics and Social Responsibility at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Um, King's College uh, was founded by Holy Cross in, uh, in 1946, and the original idea was to uh, serve the children of coal miners and, and folks who worked in the, in the great mills, um, fa fabric mills, uh, at that time. Well, the uh, coal mines are mostly shut down and the, and the fabric mills moved south and probably to China from the south, but the university continues to thrive. Dr. Prusak's research focuses in moral and political philosophy. He has published widely in scholarly journals on such topics as parental obligations and children's rights, conscience, war, religious liberty, forgiveness, and the moral limits of markets. He's a frequent contributor to Commonweal Magazine and edits an ethics forum for expositions, interdisciplinary studies in the humanities. He's been a guest editor of three issues of the Journal of Catholic Higher Education. His books include Parental Obligations and Bioethics, The Duties of a Creator, and Catholic Moral Philosophy in Practice and Theory and Introduction. His talk this evening is entitled Conscience After Religion on the Political and Moral Implications of Growing Religious Non-Affiliation. Please help me welcome our speaker, Professor Bernard Prusak. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me this evening. I appreciate seeing so many people here. To do some housekeeping on my own, is this mic fine? Should I have it lower? It's all right. And you can see this well enough. It's not too, too blurred. Very good. So thank you to the Garavenner Center, to Dr. Karen Eifler, Father Charlie Gordon, and Miss Sarah Nuxall for inviting me to join you this evening for arranging and facilitating my cross-country check, and finally for 
the hospitality which they've shown me so far. I'm grateful also to the university's provost, Dr. Thomas Green, for his interest in my work. Some of that work lately has focused on the implications of the growth of religious non-affiliation, that is, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which I was invited to study a couple years ago by Father Jim Heff's Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at USC down the coast around 1,000 miles. Like the Garavana Center, the Institute seeks to wrangle with questions that matter. In this instance, how to explain the growth of religious non-affiliation and what to make of it. As a sole philosopher and a group of mostly social scientists, my charge was what to make of it. That said, for all I know, the growth of religious non-affiliation may reflect, though mysteriously, the working of grace in human communities, which it is the mission of the Garavena Center to illuminate. And it's, there's only one philosopher in that group, though there are two people dressed exactly the same in that front row. Um, as you all likely know, Portland, Oregon, is an especially appropriate place to discuss the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, again. Here are some data points relevant to the University of Portland as a Catholic institution. According to a Pew Research Center pub survey published in 2015, slightly more than half of U.S. adults raised as Catholics have left the church at some point. About one in five of those adults return to the church, but two-thirds no longer consider themselves Catholic in any way, even so-called cultural Catholics. Of those ex-Catholics, about one-quarter became conservative evangelical Protestants, and here you could think of Vice President Mike Pence, and another quarter joined some other religion, but half became disaffiliated from religion altogether, the status of nearly one-quarter of U.S. adults, which is around the same number of U.S. Catholics in a population of 325 million. So this graph here ends in 2012, but since 2012 and 2017, we've moved from about 20% to about 25%. The trend toward disaffiliation is most pronounced among millennials, people who reached adulthood after 2000. All told, around a third of millennials identify as nuns. In a 2014 survey, 60% of millennials raised as Catholics reported never praying or attending church. Equally telling, Georgetown University's Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate reports that church marriages have declined nearly 300% since 1970. And as I was doing this slide, I decided, why not pull annulments as well? Uh, this is 70, 75, 80, that's 1985. So from 85 to 2017, again, we have a drop of 300%. It's probably not because people haven't been divorcing. While it has been found that teens raised in more conservative or self-styled Orthodox Catholic households are somewhat more likely to practice into adulthood than are teens from more liberal Catholic households, even enthusiasts for conservative Catholicism acknowledge that it has limited decline without producing impressive new growth. What's more, it is worth noting that the association of religion with countercultural reactionary politics appears to have been a significant factor in the growth of religious affiliation over the last 30 plus years. People, especially young people, 
weakly attached to religion, have increasingly become other than religious, as prominent religious leaders have condemned and sought to turn back movements of personal liberation. Surely, too, the church's recurring sexual abuse scandal has not helped. Finally, there are fascinating regional differences. Yet closer to home for you, the Public Religion Research Institute reports that with 42% of its residents identifying as religiously unaffiliated, Portland occupies a space all its own, far outpacing the next three most religiously unaffiliated cities, Seattle, 33%, San Francisco, 33%, and Denver, 32%. I'm not so sure about all the numbers here, which probably just as well you can't see, but in any event, when it's blue, we have fewer people who are affiliated with the religion. When it's red, for example, here in Utah, you have higher numbers. But what to make of this phenomenon? To recall my talk's subtitle, what are the political and moral implications of growing religious non-affiliation? My focus this evening will be on the implications for objections of conscience. Just to be clear, my concern is not principally legal, though you hear a lot about U.S. constitutional law, or even political, if political is understood narrowly as engaging in the relevant culture wars, for example, over whether bakers or florists or photographers should be permitted to refuse to service a gay marriage as the baker Jack Phillips, pictured here, objected to having to do all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court decided that case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, in its last term. For better or for worse for you, my concern with conscientious objection and religious non-affiliation is philosophical. Where the philosopher is someone who needs, alas, to have next to everything explained to her, beginning with the supposedly obvious concepts like being and good. Roughly put, my philosophical question this evening is, what force do claims of conscientious objection have in the context of growing religious non-affiliation? More bluntly, why should we accommodate conscience, if we should at all, once it no longer has any relationship with God? Underlying this blunt question is a subtler one. What else might we lose if and when we lose religion? If there is nothing above the state, so to speak, will there be anything between it and its citizens? My thesis is twofold. First, the public conception of conscience has changed under the pressure of both growing religious non-affiliation and growing religious pluralism. Second, after religion, the appeal to conscience is much less powerful than it was when God figured in the picture. My argument for those claims unfolds in two parts. First, I'll survey key moments and texts in the history of conscientious objection in the United States. Second, I'll turn to the status of conscientious objection in contemporary thought. Finally, I'll close with some brief reflections about how to best to protect the cause of conscience, or at least not harm it, should religious non-affiliation become the norm. So, respect for conscientious objection runs deep in American history. For example, in the 17th century, the colonies of Rhode Island, North Carolina, and Maryland granted Quakers exemptions from having to bear arms. Exemptions from military service 
as well as from having to take a religious oath to serve as a witness in a trial, became common across the colonies in the 18th century. And in 1775, during the buildup to the American Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress granted exemptions from military service, even in what it deemed a time of universal calamity. On the far side of the Revolutionary War, here's a young James Madison. James Madison's proposal in 1789 for what became the Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights makes for another example. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, a well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country, but no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. That's not the Second Amendment as we have it, of course. Most noticeably, this last clause didn't make it. The first two clauses got re-scrambled in various ways. Yet more instructive, though, is Madison's 1785 pamphlet entitled Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments. In other words, it's against taxes in support of religious establishments, as had been proposed in Madison's home state of Virginia. And here I apologize for quoting at some length. The religion of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man. And it is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. This right is in its nature an unalienable right, because what is here right towards men is a duty towards the Creator. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. And if a member of civil society who enters into any subordinate association must always do it with a reservation of his duty to the general authority, much more must every man who becomes a member of any particular civil society do it with the saving of his allegiance to the universal sovereign. In other words, according to Madison, any government that seeks to respect its citizens' natural rights has to recognize limits to its powers. In particular, it must seek to accommodate the free exercise of religion as a person's conscience dictates. The reason is that a person is more than a citizen of civil society. Instead, the person is subject to a higher authority than human government, and that higher authority makes known its imperatives through conscience. But here a question arises for us to keep in mind. What happens to this argument in the context of growing religious non-affiliation? Clearly, the concept of conscience that Madison is working with is a so-called religious conscience. But he might have been bemused by this qualification. For what else was conscience, as understood in 18th century North America, than the faculty by which God speaks to each, the voice of another, a communication, a command from the governor of the universe or universal sovereign? The 18th century Protestant conscience has a long history, reaching back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, as well as biblical sources. But by Madison's time and place, the conception of conscience as a divine presence had taken deep root. Reflecting its etymology, conscience was knowledge one had, or at least, or at least believed oneself to have, with another, namely God. It was an inner alternative to the ego that subjected the individual to an objective, universal moral order. From this point of view, and this is a crucial point, Conflicts arising from religious convictions were conceived not as a clash between the judgments of the individual and the state, 
but as between earthly and spiritual sovereigns, between whom the individual was suspended and caught. Though Madison was a practically-minded statesman of the first rank, the argument in his memorial and remonstrance has radical implications. At the very least, it calls into question whether a person who consciously objects to a law is morally obligated to observe it anyway. This seems unlikely if indeed, as Madison claims, every man who becomes a member of a particular civil society must do it with the saving of his allegiance to the universal sovereign. It is also telling that, whereas John Locke advocated in the 17th century limited toleration of religious differences, Madison rejected the inclusion of the word toleration in the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776 in favor instead of full and free exercise of religion. It may be that Madison did not recoil from the radical implication of his, implications of his argument because, apart from African slaves, Native Americans, a relatively small number of Roman Catholics, and even fewer Jews, his 18th century America was Protestant, and as long as the conscience was Protestant, it moved within a limited historical tradition, and its claims could be anticipated and resolved in advance. By way of example, while Quakers, Mennonites, and Moravians refused to bear arms in any case, there was no Protestant tradition of what has come to be called selective conscientious objection, that is, refusing to bear arms in a particular case because of a judgment that the war is unjust. Instead, arguments for selective conscientious objection developed, though slowly, in the Roman Catholic tradition. Accordingly, Madison did not have to worry that, as Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote toward the end of the 20th century, ours is a nation of enormous heterogeneity in respect to political views, moral codes, and religious persuasions. And it did not occur to Madison that, as Justice Antonin Scalia wrote in the 20th century's last decade, because we are a cosmopolitan nation made up of people of almost every conceivable religious preference, we cannot afford the luxury of deeming presumptively invalid, as applied to the religious objector, every, every regulation of conduct that does not protect an interest of the highest order. The scope of conscientious objection expanded in the 20th century, however, before it contracted. And here, growing religious non-affiliation re-enters our story through the biographies of conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War. Under the Military Training and Service Act of 1948, Congress had exempted from military training and service any person who, by reason of religious training and belief, is conscientiously opposed to participation in war in any form. The statute specifies that religious training and belief in this connection means an individual's belief in a relation to a supreme being involving duties superior to those arising from any human relation, but does not include essentially political, sociological, or philosophical views, or a merely personal moral code. In United States versus Seeger, the several petitioners, while not claiming to be atheists, nevertheless did not avow belief in a supreme being or God. Focusing on the language of the statute that you just saw, the court proposed as the test of belief in, relation, in a relation to a supreme being whether a given belief that is sincere and meaningful 
occupies a place in the life of its possessor parallel to that filled by the orthodox belief in God of one who clearly qualifies for the exemption. So just to explain, you have several petitioners in this case, United States versus Seeger. They don't say that they're atheists, but they also uh, don't avow belief in the supreme being or God, at least in ways that have been conventionally recognized. So the court asks, well, do they qualify for the exemption or not? Ah, let's use this test. What's the new test that we're going to apply? We're going to ask whether the given belief that this petitioner has occupies in his life a place parallel to that filled by the orthodox belief in God. So we use the orthodox belief in God as our yardstick for measuring whether the petitioner's exemption qualifies, excuse me, whether the petitioner qualifies for the exemption or not. Does that make sense? All right. So... Five years later, in Welsh versus United States, the petitioner, Elliot Welsh, initially denied that his beliefs could be characterized as religious at all, and only later allowed that they could be understood as, quote, religious in the ethical sense of the word, end quote. His religious non-affiliation was hard to deny. The court accordingly revised this interpretation of the statute to focus on whether the objector's belief was held with the strength of traditional religious conviction. So now we need a new test, right? So he doesn't even want to say he's religious at all. All right, well, does this, is his belief that, that is leading him to object to participation in war in any form, is it held with the intensity that people hold religious beliefs? So the, the test is now going to be on intensity of belief. Intensity of belief came to play the role of religious belief. As the political theorist Cecile Laborde remarks, the Seeger-Welsh jurisprudence has become the paradigm of accommodation extended from religious to non-religious moral commitments. In Welsh, the court so stretched the concept of religious that it found even beliefs that an objector was reluctant to characterize as religious sufficiently religious-like for him to qualify for an exemption. But there was a price to pay. In his much-discussed book, A Secular Age, the philosopher Charles Taylor polemicizes against what he calls subtraction stories, stories according to which, when religion crumbles away or is sloughed off, ideals and values that were always there, operating in the background, come to the fore, clear at last to sight. Taylor argues to the contrary that the allegedly perennial ideals and values turn out instead to be new inventions. It seems accurate to say that a subtraction story was at work in the background of the court's adjudication of the Seeger and Welsh cases. According to that subtraction story, what we valued in valuing religious liberty was liberty of conscience, religious or not. Now, in this age of religious pluralism and growing religious non-affiliation, the egalitarian solution to the problem of privileging religious citizens over non-religious citizens is to value liberty of conscience directly rather than through the proxy of religion. Thus, intensity of belief came to play the role of, or arguably substitute for, religious belief. The price was paid but a year after Welsh in the cases of Negra versus Larson and Gillette versus United States. And by the way, this history doesn't go on and on and on, so don't worry. We're almost at the end of the history. Both petitioners, it's not really that long a talk, sought exemption as selective, conscientious objectors. 
Guy Gillette appealed to humanistic principles for his refusal to serve in Vietnam, whereas Louis Negra, a Roman Catholic, sought discharge after consulting with the Jesuit at the University of San Francisco. That Jesuit had advised Negra that under the beliefs and teaching of the Catholic Church, he was obliged to examine and form his own conscience in respect to participating or refusing to participate in the war at this time. This time, however, the court interpreted the Universal Military Training and Service Act quite strictly as opposed to the liberties it took in Seeger and all the more Welsh. To recall, the statute exempts from military training and service any person who, by reason of religious training and belief, is conscientiously opposed to participation in war in any form. According to Justice Marshall's majority opinion, this language on a straightforward reading can bear but one meaning, that conscientious scruples relating to war and military service must amount to conscientious object opposition to participating personally in any war and all war. While acknowledging that even generally applicable religion-neutral laws may run afoul of the First Amendment when the laws in question burden religious practice, the court went on to judge that the incidental burdens felt by persons in petitioner's position are strictly justified by substantial government interests, first and foremost that of procuring the manpower necessary for military purposes. Nearly 30 years later, Negra's lawyer, the great Catholic jurist and scholar John Noonan, summarized the majority opinion thus, what was truly sacred was not the claim of conscience, but the security of the nation. Noonan obviously was disappointed by the court's decision, and there is a way in which it is surprising after the liberties the court allowed itself in Seeger and Welsh. But it also may be seen as exactly what one should have expected in the context of growing religious non-affiliation. More fully, once religious liberty claims have been reduced to just one among many species of intensely held beliefs. For it is hard to see why the mere intensity of a belief should warrant accommodation when it conflicts with the decisions of a nation's duly elected leaders. Of course, the same question might be asked with respect to the objector who intensely believes that all killing of human beings is wrong. Not only, though, is there a long tradition in the U.S. of accommodating so-called universal objectors, they are also relatively few in number, and as such, they are much less threatening to people in power. The critical point for present purposes, and now I'm transitioning to part two, is that after the Welsh decision, the claim of conscience no longer is sacred because conscience no longer is conceived in religious terms as Madison had conceived of it. In the context of growing religious non-affiliation, Welsh's conscience was not an inner alternative to the ego. He did not understand himself as standing duty-bound before God. Instead, his claim of conscience was based precisely on his merely personal moral code, whatever the court's pretensions to the contrary. In the court's decision, the religious conscience gives way to what might best be termed the post-secular conscience, which is the conception of conscience corresponding to societies in which unorthodoxy and unbelief now share the stage with dominant and traditional forms of religion, that is, so-called post-secular societies. In this context, convictions of conscience are those beliefs that are intimately tied to persons' moral identity and integrity, and conscience itself is the coming to act or taking consciousness of what the individual holds to be categorically binding on him or her in light of who he or she is and what he or she most deeply believes. 
thus reconceived under the pressure of both growing religious non-affiliation and growing religious pluralism, what is expressed in conscience is no longer knowledge shared with God or even knowledge of an objective universal moral order with or without reference to God. Instead, it is one's own values. To be clear, that is the public conception of conscience, both what remains of it after it has passed through growing religious non-affiliation and growing religious pluralism, and what is passable within the public discourse of post-secular societies like the United States. Different comprehensive doctrines, whether religious or secular, may conceive of conscience in different, thicker ways, as does, for example, the Catholic Church. Further, the U.S. Supreme Court did not, by itself, change the public conception of conscience from religious to post-secular. Instead, the court's decision in Welsh reflects the fact that religion was then becoming, and has since become all the more, contested from both within and without. From within, there are now so many religions in nations like the United States that it is increasingly hard to say what exactly counts as religion. And the demand that the law accommodate all citizens' religious beliefs appears increasingly unrealistic and imprudent. From without, there are now so many people professing no religion that it appears unfair for the law to accommodate religious beliefs in particular. The philosopher might conclude from these reflections that nowadays, in this age of growing religious non-affiliation, seeking to accommodate conscience would be more trouble than it is worth. More fully, whereas in the 18th century it made sense for the Continental Congress to exempt conscientious objectors from military service in light of the prevailing conception of conscience then, in the 21st century it does not make sense for courts or legislatures to do the same in light of the prevailing conception of conscience now. But that conclusion would be rash. Like the Nagra decision, it subordinates the demands of conscience to the demands of citizenship, which is heavy with consequence. Admittedly, so long as a state is legitimate, the citizen is rightly, rightfully subject to its laws, policies, and decisions. He or she must, for example, pay taxes. But whether the citizen must serve the state that is, administer or execute his laws, policies, and decisions, even those he or she deeply disagrees with on moral or religious grounds, is a different matter. As the political theorist Michael Walzer observes, conscientious objectors may refuse to obey, or they may refuse to become instruments of the state. And those are importantly different refusals, though in particular cases it can be quite difficult to discern just what the citizen is refusing. One way or the other, subordinating in all cases the demands of conscience to the demands of citizenship risks violence to citizens' integrity. I still have a few more pages. Not too much longer. The problematic, however, is, is yet more complex. For it must be asked as well, does integrity always have value? Does it have value when the belief that the citizen may be forced to act against appears badly wrong? Integrity is typically understood in this context as fidelity to those projects and principles which are constitutive of one's core identity. In Madison's Protestant America, there was no question that the religious values that might have motivated a conscientious objector were themselves valuable. By contrast, in the context of growing religious non-affiliation and growing religious pluralism, the value of a conscientious objector's values no longer can be taken for granted. Imagine, for example, that a conscientious objector refuses to bake a cake for an interracial wedding. 
what good reason is there to accommodate him or her? Moreover, if it is the case that, as retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote more than once, public officials are prohibited from mandating our own moral code, on what ground is the state to evaluate values to determine that some warrant accommodation but others do not? The upshot is that conscientious objection appears more questionable than ever. Here then is where matters stand. Subordinating in all cases the demands of conscience to the demands of citizenship risks violence to citizens' integrity. Moreover, arguments that citizens must submit to legal requirements gloss over the difference between refusing to obey the state, for example, by paying taxes, and refusing to become an instrument of the state, for example, by fighting its unjust wars. In traditional Christian terms, the distinction is between rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering unto God what is God's. In the context of growing religious non-affiliation, the challenge for defenders of conscience is to make a case for it without God, after religion, on the basis of the questionable value of fidelity to core commitments and convictions, whatever they happen to be. Cecile Laborde, here she is, has taken on this challenge, so I'm going to close this talk by turning to her. Laborde tells a sophisticated subtraction story of her own. According to her, what we valued in valuing religious liberty was personal integrity. Now, in this age of growing religious non-affiliation and pluralism, the egalitarian solution to the problem of privileging religious citizens over non-religious citizens is to value personal integrity directly, rather than through the proxy of religion. For Laborde, the question to ask is, what kinds of commitment are so important to people that their integrity would be threatened were they prevented from acting on them, regardless of whether the commitments in question can be categorized as religious? Admittedly, the fact that an integrity-protecting commitment is burdened by a law does not mean, without further ado, that the burden is unfair. Yet, Laborde claims that burdens can be unfair when there seems to be a disproportion between the aims pursued by the law and the burden the law inflicts on claimants. Now, what to make of this defense? The claim, I can't go to war lest my integrity be compromised, does seem stronger than the claim, I can't go to war because it's against my intensely held beliefs. That a person holds a belief intensely does not seem either here or there to the question of whether it warrants respect. By contrast, inasmuch as there is good reason to respect persons, there is at least a prima facie reason, that is, a reason on its face or at first appearance, to respect a belief that is core to a person's identity. But the argument for the value of integrity needs elaboration. After all, why respect someone's core beliefs when they appear to be badly wrong? Here, then, is how another philosopher has put the case for integrity. Given the temptations we all face to backslide and act hypocritically, being faithful to one's core commitments is a rare and worthy thing. It is never good to act inconsistently with one's deepest values. When someone like George Wallace, the segregationist, chooses to stand in the door to block access to black students, we rightly condemn this. But what we're really condemning is Wallace's failure to rethink his segregationist views, not his integrity. Acting inconsistently with one's professed values is always a moral failure, considered simply as such. And that's the end of the quotation. This argument reflects, and might be considered the descendant of, 
the traditional question of whether an erring conscience binds. That is, whether a conscience in the wrong obliges the person whose conscience it is. The example that's often given in the literature is Huck Finn. How many people have read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? So you can simplify the story, and if you simplify it, I think the story is much more complex, but if you simplify it, Huck thinks that what he's doing with the runaway slave Jim is they go down the river is wrong, right? So whenever Huck thinks about what he's doing with Jim, he can't but think of Jim as property, and he can't but think of what he's doing as stealing, right? So is Huck obliged by his erring conscience? We want to say Huck's conscience is wrong there, Right? He's wrong to think of Jim as property. He's wrong to think of what he's doing with Jim as, as, as stealing. Well, the traditional answer is yes, an erring conscience blinds. I'm stealing the thunder of my slide here. An erring conscience blinds because it's never right to do what you take to be wrong, even if you're wrong about what's wrong. <laughs> it's never right for you to choose to do what you believe to be evil. You with me? Yes. So you could be wrong about what's evil. Right? That's a traditional answer in any event. So the traditional answer to that question, whether an erring conscience binds, is yes, even an erring conscience binds, because it is never right for a person to choose to do what she believes to be evil, even if she is wrong about what is evil. In other words, conscience has first-person authority, authority for the person whose conscience it is. Yet a person nonetheless might do wrong in following her conscience, for a person is not only responsible to her conscience, but also responsible for it, namely for forming it well. Accordingly, despite the first-person authority of conscience, scope for freedom of conscience does not follow logically from the acknowledgment that even an, even an erring conscience binds. The reason is that authorities might well judge a person's conscience badly formed, and thus restrict freedom of conscience in the interests of the common good. This traditional answer unfolded, however, against the background of, of a conception of conscience as a meeting place of the human and the divine. In other words, against the background of a belief that in conscience one comes into the presence of the divine. So long as the authoritative interpreter of a person's conscience was the church or crown, the power of this conception of conscience was contained. Acknowledgement of the first-person authority of conscience did not rule out correction or repression of judgments of conscience deemed mistaken by authoritative third parties, even in the new world of North America. Yet in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, full containment was not possible, as evidenced by Roger Williams's breakaway Rhode Island, the Continental Congress's forbearance toward the peace churches like the Quakers and Mennonites, Madison's memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments, and finally, the First Amendment. I can't go to war lest my integrity be compromised seems more powerful than I can't go to war because it's against my intensely held beliefs, but it still is not nearly as powerful as I can't go to war lest I violate my duty to God. In the context of growing religious non-affiliation and pluralism, the appeal to integrity may be the strongest defense available for conscientious objection. Further, Laborde seems right that integrity can be valued as a good, both by religious and by non-religious citizens. Yet it is doubtful that this overlapping consensus on the value of integrity captures the core of the religious conscience. That core is the connection to God, which historically is what gave conscientious objection its force. 
Every conscientious objector takes a stand based on his or her commitments and convictions. That is what might be termed the form of conscientious objection. It always implicates integrity. By contrast, what might be termed the matter of conscientious objection, the objector's material commitments and convictions can vary widely. It follows that, even if it is never good to act inconsistently with one's deepest values, there might be good reason to judge those values mistaken, take George Wallace again, and reject even the thought of accommodation. Here is a final heretical thought. If, as Samuel Johnson is sometimes misquoted as saying, religion is the last refuge of a scoundrel, it may be equally the last refuge of conscientious objection. There is reason to resist subtraction stories that would have us value personal integrity directly rather than through the proxy of religion. The reason is that the religious conscience has, or at least had, a power that the appeal to integrity lacks to respect, to repeat, the connection to God. To be sure, just as the pursuit of integrity cannot justify morally abhorrent actions, the religious conscience, too, is rightly restricted should the basic rights of others be imperiled. Connection to God clearly is no excuse for human sacrifice. The religious conscience, however, resists reduction to a merely personal moral code. So long as duty to God or the like is in the picture and is taken seriously, as Madison's governor of the universe and universal sovereign was, merely human government has strong reason to be deferential. By contrast, the appeal to integrity, all by itself, has much less going for it. As the Seeger and Welsh decision suggests, the appeal to integrity has power when it can piggyback on the religious conscience, which is, which is to say when it appears at least somewhat religion-like. Religion but what if religion should vanish from the earth? What if, as the pop song asks us to imagine, there is no religion too? Or what if, though religion should persist, it loses its cultural clout? Would the demands of conscience have a fighting chance against the demands of citizenship? Would the merely personal be enough should religious non-affiliation become the norm? There's no answering those questions in advance. Time will tell. The dynamic I've traced, though, suggests the answer, perhaps not. Growing religious non-affiliation threatens to weaken objections of conscience. Admittedly, the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court has looked favorably on conscience claims in recent years, and here recall the baker, Jack Phillips, but the trend elsewhere, such as in the United Kingdom and Canada and California, appears to be toward what one critic calls secular authoritarianism, running roughshod over all claims of conscience, whether religious or not. Against that background, religious leaders like the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops would do well to take note that the cause of liberty of conscience has become suspect as cover for trying to undo cultural change, for example, with respect to gay marriage. At least in the United States, it may be possible to win conscience wars in the courts for the next generation or so, but that strategy seems sure to generate backlash in the broader culture wars, as well as to hasten the flight from religion among millennials. I have two sentences to go. That's it. Just two sentences. <laughs> Longer term, it seems sure to discredit conscience. Using it as a trump card in our culture wars risks rendering it useless, which would be a great loss indeed. Thank you for your attention. I host lots of events as director of the Ethics Center. I have to commend you. I think only one person left during my talk. <laughs>
Well, we've got a we've got a present for you, and, and gratitude for your much. talk. And, you. and and because that we know it's midterm week, particularly because we know it's midterm week, we're not going to have formal question and answers. But uh, if you do would like like to have a word with uh, Dr. Prusak, I'm sure he'd be available after the talk. So let's uh, let's thank him for his thoughtful presentation.